Hey, Johnny. Hey, Tara. You know what? You, what? you need to sa- you need to save that that voice for your soon to be betrothed Andrew Cuomo. And I just realized, thanks to Randy Rainbow, that you are a Cuomo sexual. Did you know oh, that? Oh, I'm a huge Cuomo sexual. I'm a total Cuomo sexual too. And like yeah, Randy Rainbow, no, it started with no. no. It started with my my Chris Cuomo, but now I'm easily transferring it to his brother. <laughs> um, how you doing? I'm doing A-OK. How are you doing? I'm doing A-OK. If I bake any more things, I'm not going to be able to get out of my house. <laughs> I mean... Did I, did I send you that meme that said, so uh, how does this work? Will the producers of the 600 pound, my 600-pound life just call me? Or do I reach out to them? Because <laughs> it's so true. It's happening. It's happening. I mean, there's not enough walking you can do around your apartment or house to, you know, work off the butter and sugar. Um, okay, just just placate me. I just need a little bit. What are you baking? Um, I'm making banana. I'm making banana bread today. <gasps> banana bread. Do you? You want me to leave a loaf out for you, and you can come get it on one of your on one of your rides, non-corona rides. <laughs> yes. Yes. Okay, yes. we'll figure it out. Um, um, let's get to our guest today because uh, I, I think you know that I have been a very big supporter of the human rights campaign, which is known as HRC. Uh, my very good friend, uh, Chad Griffin, was the president for years. And this past year, they have a wonderful, wonderful new president uh, who is our guest. And his name is Alfonso David. And we are lucky enough to get to have uh, some time with him today. And I'm very excited. And you know what? He used to work with Cuomo, so don't geek out. You don't geek out. Don't tell me what you you're not the boss of me. Um, <laughs> I, I, too, am a huge fan of the human rights campaign because, and and I strongly recommend that everybody go and look at their website and what they're doing. They are the largest LGBTQ advocacy group and lobbying organization in the United States. Did you know that? Did you know that? In the world. In In the world. world. And they are doing a lot of international things now, thanks to their new leadership. And um, yes, I did know that. It's it's an organization that does not just outreach to communities of the LGBTQ and ally communities, but also... They do a lot of political work, so we're going to get into mm-hmm. that. They, they were they were very very active in the midterm elections. They, you could almost say they they really were a part of swinging the vote to the left in the House of Representatives. And we really need this organization to stay strong. And they're going to be facing a lot of challenges. So we're excited uh, to have him on to tell us about. He has an extraordinary personal story that I want people to know about. And so. Um, you know, I'm super excited. I am too. So why don't you stop talking and let's get to Alfonso David. Do you want the banana bread? No. Yes. Okay. Sweet in the pot, girl. All right. When we come back, <laughs> the incredibly <laughs> intelligent and impressive and fantastic president of the Human Rights Campaign, Alfonso David, when we come back. Welcome back to Hollywood Caucus, Tara. I am so excited to have our guest with us uh, on the phone from New York. Please welcome HRC's president, Alfonso David. Hi, Alfonso. Hi, how are you? We are all uh, dealing, I guess, <laughs> is the best way to, to describe it. But I, I'm, I'm doing well. I'm doing well. I understand you're in New York right now. I am in New York. I was in Washington, D.C. for a few weeks, and then I came up to New York, um, and I've been in New York for maybe two weeks now. Uh, the days are all merging, and I've lost concept of time, but I think it's been two weeks. Yeah, my concept of time is based on what item I'm baking that day. <laughs> I am I am consuming large amounts of butter and sugar in the form of cookies <laughs> and breads. 
Um, and I don't cook. I don't cook. So I think I'm, I'm in 1978. I have no idea what time it is. So it's all good. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Um, we, uh, we we definitely want to get to uh, to all the things that are happening right now in our world at HRC. But both Tara and I are just uh, really dying to talk to you about your your extraordinary um childhood story you know i'm an immigrant myself i'm a queer immigrant and i feel like i have a lot in common with you in a way even though you were born in the states but then at one you you moved your family moved to liberia right yes yes so it's a it's a fairly involved uh background but i'll I'll try to give you some uh some context so i was born in the united states in 1970 and my family left the u.s when I was about a year old, um, my father and my mother moved back. Um, my father made a decision he wanted to run for political office. And he ran and he won. He became the first elected mayor of Monrovia, which is the capital city of right. Liberia. My uncle also decided he was going to run and he ran for the president. Uh, presidency. He was the president of Liberia. And so I lived a very privileged life uh, for a few years in the 70s. And then um, on in April in uh, 1980, there was a military coup. And mm-hmm. my uncle was assassinated. Um, my father was arrested and incarcerated. And we were placed under house arrest. So for about 18 months or so, my father was in prison. And during those 18 months, we had no contact with him. Uh, We would watch, there was no television at that point, other than news reports coming Mm -hmm. on every once in a while. And the news reports were essentially meant that were men strapped to wooden poles on a beach, and they would go down the row and shoot each man. Uh, and as the camera rolled down the beach, we sat there in horror, thinking, "Oh my God! Okay, the the next face is going to be our father. The next face is going to be our father. The next face is going to be our father." Oh. So we went through many of those viewings. 18 months later, my father's released from prison. Uh, He seeks asylum in the United States. Uh, He's denied, uh, initially denied, and I think a light bulb goes off at some point and he goes back to the U.S. Embassy and he says, I have two children who are U.S. citizens and um, they shouldn't be under living under house arrest, number one, or be subject to potential right. um, death. So we were able to come to the U.S. Um, and my father sought asylum uh, in the U.S. And after years of applying, uh, ultimately uh, received asylum. Wow. So, yeah. How old were you at that point when, when you came back? So came back at 14. Wow. And... I had absolutely no memory of the United States, of course, because when I left, I was yeah. a year old. Uh, I remember it was the second time I'd seen snow. First time was in Germany. We went to Munich for a, a holiday when when my uh, when we were living in Liberia. So it was the second time that I saw snow, mm-hmm. and we arrived in the winter. It was I just remember it was December. We got off the plane and it was so cold. And uh, we ended up staying in White Plains, New York. And then ultimately, my parents migrated to the south, um, well, Washington, D.C., which technically is the south, I guess. Uh, It is. So, yeah. I I, I grew up in Porchester, so White Plains was, um, you know, where the mall was. I used to go to White Plains all the time, and I had the same, uh, the, the snow thing was a magical thing. You know, we moved here when I was 10 from Uruguay. And I just remember just, you know, we lived in the ghetto basically in Porchester, but everything blanketed white was just pure magic. You know, um, I, I, <laughs> I, I have, that. I, I bet that's a very similar um, 
immigrant experience when you come from, you know, the Southern Hemisphere to, to have that, the snow thing be a thing? Yeah, at 14 years old, you are now in the United States after experiencing some some pretty heavy shit. What, what, what's that experience? <laughs> I'm sorry. I mean, there's no other way to say it. What is that experience like? Are you, are you, have you at that point realized you're gay or is that, are you still not there yet at 14? Oh, I've had that internal conversation with myself since I'm a, since I was a kid. I, I knew that I was different. Right. Um, but, but I also, I, you know, I don't know if other kids who are gay do this or have done this, but I thought every other kid was also gay. They were just not allowed to say anything. Ooh, I love so, that. Yeah. No, I never had that. That, that is good magic. <laughs> no, it's fantastic magic. So I thought, well, okay, I find, I, I think I like boys versus girls. And I think other boys like me as well, but we're not allowed to say anything. Oh, wow. So I lived most of my youth thinking, well, yes, I understand you like boys, but you're never allowed to act on it. You're never right. allowed to say anything, and neither are they. Wow. So when I moved to the U.S., I still had that thought process. Um, mm-hmm. It was sort of ingrained in me. I, I grew up in a Methodist and a Baptist home, and uh, my father was Methodist, my mother was Baptist, and we went to church every Sunday and the things that I heard uh, from the pulpit certainly didn't make me feel any welcome, didn't make me feel mm-hmm. more welcomed. Uh, and certainly I wasn't able to acknowledge being LGBTQ. So when I moved to the U.S. at 14, I, there was a sense of dread and a sense of um, alienation that I felt coming to the U.S. Because you have to remember when we moved to the U.S., my father was very concerned about us going outside, concerned yeah. about us going to school. Um, so we were homeschooled for quite some time. And when we eventually got to go to school, uh, it was worse than I ever expected. Mm. Uh, I remember walking into middle school and walking into what, I don't know if it's still called homeroom, but homeroom, yeah. right? The yeah, homeroom, yeah. <laughs> yep. I remember so, homeroom. <laughs> I walked we all into remember homeroom. homeroom. <laughs> <laughs> I walked into homeroom and the teacher said, Oh, we have a new student. Uh, this is Alfonso. And he's from Africa. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking, Oh, okay, I don't think this is going to go well. No, that's not going to go well. <laughs> <laughs> not a good intro. Yeah. <laughs> right. Sort of, you know, here's the, you know, the object. Here's the yeah. target. Here's the other. Here's the target. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. I sat down and um, I remember looking around and thinking, okay, just focus on your work. Uh, I have to go to the restroom or we took a break and everybody needs to go to the restroom. And I went to the restroom. And I remember um, these kids pulling down my trousers and saying, where's your tail? You're from Africa. <gasps> where's your tail? Oh, my God. Oh, my God. And I, I thought, oh, yeah, I thought it was going to be bad. <laughs> I didn't realize it was going to be this bad. Right. Uh, and so there was a sense of alienation when I went through middle school oh, where yeah. – um, no one wanted to be associated with the quote African. No one wanted to be friends with the quote African. Um, and I had to, you know, make my way through middle school uh, without needing that social, that sense of social interaction that many kids thrive on in middle school and high school. I had to come to terms with the fact that I wouldn't have that experience. Right. Uh, um, and high school was a little better, uh, but um, but that sense of alienation and isolation still carried through. And then something magical happened when I went to college. For some reason, people became more aware. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and 
and it shifted quite radically. I became from I, I, I shifted from an object of you know dread and ridicule to a person that everyone was intrigued by. Um, and this is you know the early '90s uh, when I think things changed in pop culture. And yeah, they did. Uh, it was more acceptable. It was more interesting to be from, you know, quote Africa. Uh, so I had a different experience in college, but it was it was a it was a really strange experience. First going to middle school and then high school. Right, right. Did, did uh, so because I know when my when my family moved here, uh, our economic status completely changed from what would be considered, you know, sort of upper middle class in Uruguay to being on welfare, <laughs> frankly, in the first few years in the States. Uh, did you, did your family go from, because uh, you said you had a level of privilege when you were, when you were in Africa. Did, did, did you, did that suffer when you moved to the States? Were you at a, a lower income area and all of that? Yes. Okay. So when we we were in the privileged class in Liberia, and when we moved to the United States, it shifted quite radically. My father, who was an elected official, uh, reached out to the White House after we came to the U.S. because he thought, well, of course, the president will return my phone call. Right. I am the mayor of Monrovia. Uh, and I remember as a kid, my father would host events with heads of states from many countries. Uh, mm -hmm. President Carter came to Liberia many times. But during the 1980 military coup, there was a shift in administration. Carter lost the election and Reagan became the new president. And when we came to the U.S. in 84 or so, uh, he reached out, but there was no return phone call. And I remember watching his face when he kept on telling the story about, well, I called the White House and they should return the call. And, you know, we just have to wait for a few days. And a few days turned into a few weeks, turned into a few months. And my father uh, started working at a department store but never told us. And so uh, in middle school, one of my friends said, do you want to go to the mall? And I said, what's the mall? <laughs> and <laughs> they said, oh, this is a place where you have, you know, department stores and different activities and, you know, we can go there. And so I said, okay. We went to the department store or we went to the mall. And as we walked through the mall, I looked in the corner of my eye and I saw my father. And he was selling shoes in a department store. He didn't see me, but I saw him. And later on that evening, I went home and I said, Dad, so when we're at school, what do you do? And he said, I make sure there's food on the table and that's all you mm. need to know. Oh, man. And he wow. was so devastated. He was so incredibly devastated coming from a place of privilege, a place of power, a place of influence. Yes to, in his mind at least, uh, not being able to really take care of his family or struggling to take care of his family. Yeah. And I see that and think about that all the time with immigrant families that come to this country, uh, doctors and engineers and lawyers, yes. right. uh, who are unable to really participate in our economy in the same way they did before they came and what right. they have to do in order, in order to survive. It's Jen with the Human Rights Campaign. We are the nation's largest LGBTQ advocacy group. As a member of the LGBTQ community, I can tell you from experience that during these uncertain times, it is more important than ever that we band together. We've overcome in times of crisis before, and we can do it again. The LGBTQ community is especially vulnerable to this crisis. I want you to know that the Human Rights Campaign is here to help. We have a number of resources available from Tips for LGBTQ youth to inclusive activities for kids to cell phone backgrounds and 
Spotify playlists. Text PODCAST to 472-472 to get easy access to all of our resources from your phone. This is a scary time. Many of us, myself included, are concerned and afraid for ourselves and our loved ones, but we must continue to lift each other up, raise our voices, and fight for our community. HRC is here for you. Text PODCAST to 472-472. I want to talk about that beautiful speech you gave at, at your first HRC dinner. Very, very moving. Mm-hmm. I'm, uh, I'm a fan of your abilities. Um, you talked about coming out to your dad and how, how long that took for him to, um, you know, embrace who you are. Um, how old were you when you told him you were gay? So I told my father when I was in my early 20s. I mm-hmm. graduated from college. I had just started my started working. I was doing environmental justice work, and then I worked at the DA's office. And I don't remember what I was doing at that point when I told him. But uh, it was a very, very strange interchange where it was clear that my father had a few drinks. And uh, he called me and a series of questions about, I'm confused. Why is it that you don't bring girls around anymore? Which I thought, that's strange. Why are you asking me that question? Mm. And he asked a series of questions along those lines. uh, And I finally said, are you trying to ask me something? And he said, yes. And there was silence on the phone. And I said, are you trying to ask me if I'm gay? Silence. It felt like eternity. Mm. And he said, yes. And I said, do you really want to know? Because I wanted to give him an out. Yeah. Uh, And he said, yes. And once I told him, there was this violent eruption. And he said, I wish you would die. I wish you were never born. I wish you were never born. As far as I'm concerned, you're no longer a David. I mean, he got very violent and very emotional. And I just remember having to pull the phone away from my ear because he was screaming so loud. And it was, I remember... I remember that conversation as if it was yesterday. I remember where I was sitting in my bedroom. I remember the door was closed. I remember it was seven or eight o'clock at night. And it was as if my world exploded after that conversation. And how long was it before your father um, allowed you back into his life or came around? It took years. Uh, uh, after I told my father I was gay, I, he said, you're disowned. You're no longer a part of this family. We never want to see you again. He then, after that conversation on the phone, I, I then had another conversation with him where I received a phone call. And he said, your mother and I would like to talk to you. My father was very formal. <laughs> Okay. And I went to my parents' home and they came up with a plan. And the plan was I would go to see a psychiatrist and I would go to see the pastor. And uh, those two exchanges would make me straight again. And uh, that meeting lasted for two hours or so. And I said, I'm not. I'm not doing that. Uh, I'm not going to see a psychiatrist because there's nothing wrong with me. And I'm not going to see a pastor because his interpretation of the Bible is different than mine. Mm. My mother was very concerned that I would go to hell. Yeah. Um, and she was also concerned that I would die some, you know, in some violent way because of being gay. Sure. Uh, and so that conversation lasted for a few hours, and I said, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I don't think see this changing. 
And I remember seeing the face, their faces and they realized that this was not a phase and that they would have to come to terms with it. But it took them a very long time to come to terms with it. And I think for my father, the first time I realized that he needed some time is I decided, okay, now it's time to date. And I started dating someone and I called my father and I said, look, I understand that you have challenges with my sexual orientation, but I would like to introduce you to someone who I'm dating. And I think, you know, maybe it could become serious some, at some point. And my father said, it's taking you 20 plus years to realize who you are. I need some time. Mm. I said, that's fair. Yep. Uh, so I gave him some time, but it really took him years of really grappling with his faith, his religion, uh, the cultural norms. In Liberia, being gay is illegal. Right. So he grew up in an environment where it was completely unacceptable to have a member of your family be openly gay. Right. Um, Alfonso, this is a, a this has been a beautiful story. Um, we're going to take a little break, uh, and when we come back, I, I love to talk to you about your your brilliant career, um, your former boss, who's now a superstar, <laughs> and Cuomo. <laughs> Who Tara has a terrible crush on, and your <laughs> your um, exciting. He's, he's my soon-to-be husband. Can you yeah, not talk sorry. about my? Jesus. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and of course, you taking over HRC, which is incredibly exciting to me. Uh, I've been wanting the organization uh, for years to continue growing internationally, and I think you're the right guy to make that happen. So, well, a lot more with Alfonso when we come back. Okay, and we're back with the wonderful Alfonso David. Um, okay, so we just heard about your kind of amazing story of your childhood. Let's talk about what happened after that, how you became a civil rights lawyer, uh, correct? Yes. Yes. And uh, that, that, uh, just tell us, tell us about, tell us about your law. <laughs> <laughs> So I graduated from college and I knew that I wanted to practice law, but I spent a few years running a company, interning at the DA's office, interning at the public defender's office, and then finally I went to law school. Uh, three years later, I clerked for a federal judge in Philadelphia uh, who was just incredible, uh, Clifford Scott Green who's now passed away, but uh, I clerked for him. I then worked for a law firm, Blank Rome, in Philadelphia, um, a major international law firm. I focused on general litigation, representing clients all over the country in a variety of ways, contract disputes um, to anti-trust uh, uh, litigation to fraud. Uh, so I did that for about two years, and then I received an offer to start um, an addiction treatment center with some venture capitalists who were interested in creating an addiction treatment center in Los Angeles that was really focused on, it had a philanthropic bent. And their perspective was, we understand that many people who are suffering from addiction uh, can afford to hire the best in order to help them, but there are others who can't. There are others that are in downtown Los Angeles that are suffering from everything from alcohol addiction to drug addiction, and they don't have any meaningful support or access to services. So we're looking to create this company that will do a combination of both, and are you interested? And I initially thought, no, uh, I'm a litigator. I'm not a corporate transactional lawyer, but uh, with some uh, fair amount of convincing, they told me that uh, they really wanted to create a one-of-a-kind. So I moved to Los Angeles, created the company from ground up, uh, and it was one of the most successful addiction treatment centers in the world. It was called the Canyon at Peace Park. Can we get um, Tara? So can we get Can we get Tara into that? <laughs> After the quarantine, okay. we're gonna we're gonna put you in there, girl. Um, <laughs> God, I went from loving you both to hating you both just like that. Okay. I'm so uh, sorry. I'm just laughing because he's laughing. Really. 
This is not uh-huh. any way it does uh-huh. well. <laughs> Okay. So, yeah. uh, Let's just continue, so, shall we? <laughs> so I uh, I ran the company for about a year, and then something miraculous happened. The United States Supreme Court issued a decision in a case called Lawrence versus Texas. And in that case, two men were having sex in the privacy of their home, and they were arrested Mm -hmm. because it violated the Texas law. And Texas law effectively said, if you engage in sodomy, it's criminal. Uh, They challenged that Texas statute all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court. And the U.S. Supreme Court, surprisingly, issued a ruling that effectively overruled a decision they had issued a number of years before, Bowers versus Hardwick. Uh, And the decision that the court issued said that two consenting adults in the privacy of their home have a liberty interest that is protected by the U.S. Constitution. I said to myself after reading it, it's time. It's time to do what you've always wanted to do with this civil rights work. Uh, I drafted my resume in a cover letter and I sent it off to Lambda Legal, and I believe either a day or two days later, I received a phone call, and they said we would like to talk to you. And so after a series of interviews, including one with, I don't know, 16 people or so in a conference room, Mm -hmm. I uh, took a job in New York as Lambda Legal's new staff attorney. And uh, my first piece of uh, work product was filing a lawsuit in New York challenging the New York law that discriminated against same-sex couples in marriage. So we represented same-sex couples who were seeking the right to marry. We won at the trial level. And then we ended up losing three years later uh, in the Court of Appeals, which is the highest court in New York. And I was devastated after going through that process for three years, thinking we would win this lawsuit. Of course, it is discrimination to say different sex couples can marry, but same sex couples cannot marry. Uh, So after going through that for three years, I left Lambda and then joined government. I worked at the the, uh, human rights uh, division, which is uh, the oldest state agency in the country. They enforce uh, the the civil rights law. And then I joined the Attorney General's office with then Attorney General Andrew Cuomo, and I ran the Civil Rights Bureau for a number of years. And then after that, I thought I would go back to the private sector or do something else. And he asked me to join him in the governor's office, and I became his civil rights policy advisor. I ended up writing the marriage equality law in New York with a few of my colleagues. And then I became the governor's chief counsel. And... uh, August last year, I became the president of the Human Rights Campaign. Wow. You know, I'm just going to say, you're really kind of a slacker. I mean, I finally <laughs> even interviewed. Oh, my God. Jesus. I, I felt I mean, good Alfonso, because I made my own coffee this morning, you know? <laughs> Alfonso, I think, I think you need a vacation. I mean, my God. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um well, we, this would be a really good point to ask this. What do you do for fun? How do you, what's your, what's your, guilty, what's your guilty pleasure? Is there like Seriously. a terrible TV show that you like to watch? I mean, uh, what, yeah. what is, so, yeah. <laughs> so I, I, I'm a little bit of a health nut. So I work out every day, uh, everything from plyometrics to calisthenics to, I practice yoga twice a week. I bike, I play tennis. So some form of physical activity is really important for me. So I love all of that. I also love film. So I love independent films. I love international films. So I watch a lot of films. And my guilty pleasure, I would say, is Schitt's Creek. Um, It is not guilty. That is genius. I love you for that. David. I love, love, love that show. I it's love fabulous. how creative they are, yeah. uh, how authentic it is. And I've been watching it for years. Uh, so I love Shit's yeah. Creek. I do too. I, it's uh, number one on mine and Kyle's list of, uh, of shows to watch and kind of rewatch because we've, we've watched it more than once. Um, yay. Okay. I love that. <laughs> I love that show. Um, 
let's um let's actually take a little break and and get deep into HRC's uh, current uh, challenges with the coronavirus and you know dinners being you know, probably postponed and uh, missions with all the things happening and and all the all the needs out there. So a little break, and when we come back, we're gonna dive into HRC. And we're back with Alfonso David. Um, so Alfonso, uh, uh, HRC uh, is uh, an organization that I uh, have been really behind for such a long time. I mean, it, it covers so many aspects of, of of the need we have uh, in our community, in the LGBTQ community. Um, you you land at HRC at at, at really a crucial point because marriage equality is is a law as far as we know uh, and 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 i think pretty stable but now we're going to be facing a ton of other attacks on us what 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 is happening at hrc in terms of like your priorities now that you're leading it um yeah i'm curious to know what, what your vision is for the, the future of the organization sure so <clears throat> i am focus like a laser beam, and I know many others are, are as well, on the election. Yes. November, November 2020 will be hopefully a sea change for this country. Uh, we need pro-quality candidates at every single level of government. I'm not only focused on the presidency, but we certainly need a pro-quality candidate in the White House, a president in the White House, who will represent the interests of all of our communities, including those who are most marginalized. And so my, one of my main priorities here is making sure that we mobilize our entire community of LGBTQ activists and supporters and all of our allies to engage in a meaningful way to make sure that we can elect a pro-equality candidate to the presidency of this country. We also need to hold on to the House of Representatives. We need to flip the U.S. Senate, and we need to win several states. There are governors uh, who are running for election. There are state legislators who are running for election. We need to make sure that the LGBTQ community is protected at the state level, at the local level, and at the federal level. And so that is one of my major priorities this year, is making sure that we can do that. What we've seen, for the past four years, almost three and a half now, years of Donald Trump being in the White House is uh, strategic. I believe this is very strategic, a strategic erosion of protections that marginalized communities have had. The fact that transgender troops can no longer serve in the US military, the fact that the Trump administration is suggesting that LGBTQ people should be subject to discrimination. A federal contractor should be able to fire an LGBTQ person just because they're LGBTQ is insane and offensive. And so our objective has to be to get in a pro-equality candidate who will respect all of our communities. So that is, for me, number one. Because if we don't have elected officials who can represent our interests, then what we're doing is we are placing band-aids over problems. And I'm actually right. interested in a widespread systemic change. Um, I'm also focused on uh, a group of, uh, within the LGBTQ community who has been, that has been marginalized for quite some time, which is the transgender community. Absolutely. Members of the transgender community have higher levels of unemployment, uh, unfortunately higher levels of suicide and attempted suicides, yeah. Um, are unfortunately living in poverty, and we need to come together as a community and support the transgender community. And so we launched an initiative called the Transgender Justice Initiative that is tailored to work with community activists at the local level and really advance solutions that can benefit the transgender community. One is to, we were planning job fairs all over the country with many of our corporate partners so that we can identify opportunities within the corporate sector, do some skill building exercises, and actually create opportunities for many members of the trans community. That's, I'm so, also smart. That's so smart. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's really, really important. I'm also focusing on voting. You know, uh, there are efforts 
throughout this country to suppress the right to vote. We all have a constitutional right to vote. Unfortunately, in many cases, if you're transgender, if you're gender nonconforming, if you're a racial minority, and you show up to vote, you face an obstacle where someone will say, oh, the driver's license doesn't look like you, so we're not going to allow you to vote. Or for someone who is a racial minority and the person shows up to vote and they say, well, we're sorry, we're gonna need a utility bill or we're gonna need something else to verify that you are who you say you are. Mm -hmm. And we entered into a partnership with Stacey Abrams, um, who I believe is the rightful governor of Georgia, but- uh, and, and, potentially, <laughs> and potentially the vice president of the United States. <laughs> yes, we can only hope. She, she is absolutely fantastic. And we yeah. entered into a partnership with her to really look at voter suppression issues in 20 in throughout the country, but really focusing on the 20 battleground states. And we're doing that. And, and I'm also launched a litigation initiative where we're doing work both domestically and internationally, because I think we have to think about our community much more expansively. Uh, equality Absolutely. from my perspective, equality from my perspective doesn't stop at our borders, Absolutely. right? We have yeah. to care about people that live outside of our borders because just like, you know, any illness or disease or, uh, you know, people think of populism as something that is easy to translate and transfer, but equality is just as easy for us to transfer if we commit to it and if we advance it. And so I've been focused on thinking about how we can, as a community, think more expansively about our siblings that live in other parts of the world. I'm so I'm so excited by that. You know, I, I think I brought that up in uh, in one of the speeches at HRC because I've been on the road with with you guys and the international. Uh, you know, the lack of rights for us internationally is just uh, so scary and awful. And I'm really glad that you're that you're putting energy into that. That uh, that makes me feel very happy. Um, in terms of like the moment we're in right now. Uh, obviously, the LGBT community has our own challenges with with a virus like this, but we also have a lot of experience with dealing with viruses like this. Um, what are the challenges fundraising wise for HRC? <clears throat> because I know the dinners are a big part of that. And what can we all do to keep supporting the organization um, through these hard times? So COVID-19 is a challenge for all of us, uh, personally and professionally. And for the Human Rights Campaign, it's just as it's going to be impacted just like any other organization doing really important work. Uh, we are trying to shift from most of our work being physical contact. You could think of it in the political space or in the programmatic space and we're shifting to do more of our work virtually. Uh, and that's important to us because we need to make sure that we get information to all of our members. So as an example, we uh, recently held a webinar with Lambda Legal regarding COVID-19 and the impact of COVID-19 on LGBTQ older adults. Because we know that if you are an older adult, you're more susceptible to being affected by COVID-19. And we also know that unfortunately, um, the LGBTQ community faces unique challenges. Um, their pe older LGBTQ adults, for example, are twice as likely to be living alone and four times less likely to have children. We have more than 2.7 million older adults in the United States. And they are you know, grappling with chronic conditions just like everyone else and we need to make sure that we provide those resources to them virtually. So as we canceled the dinners and uh, most of the events that we would have held uh, in person, we're now doing a lot of that work virtually. Right. And to, to your last question, I would say, I would ask uh, for all of your listeners to support the organization. We have an election that is coming up in November. Uh, we yes. have a lot of programmatic work that we still have yet to do. The work doesn't go away because of COVID-19. If anything, COVID-19 compounds the challenges that we face. One out of every, one out of 
five LGBTQ people live in poverty. One out of five. And wow. more oh my than God, five, are you kidding? No, no it's true. one yeah. out of five LGBTQ people live in poverty. And, and so if you think about that, and then you also think about the economic challenges. So if more than five million LGBTQ people work in jobs that are going to be impacted by COVID-19. We're talking about restaurants and food service. More than 2 million LGBTQ people work in those industries. Education, more than 2 million. Retail, a million. And as you know, so many people are losing their jobs. So right. if you're already living in poverty and you lose your job, we have to care about our entire community. And that's what we're doing making sure that this information is out there, that it informs policymakers when they are developing, quote, solutions to COVID-19. We want to make sure that in the stimulus packages, we have resources for people that are multiply marginalized, and that's what we're advocating for. Great. Well, I, I really urge everyone listening, if you have a few bucks in your pocket, to we'll put up a link to donate will, to HRC. Yeah. Um, it is my it is my organization of choice uh, out of many, and um, I, I am uh, I'm so grateful that you're you're there in, in that position right now, Alfonso. I I, I feel very uh, heartened to have you there, um, and and I think we will get through this. And you know you have my support anytime you need it. Um, Tara, you do don't you, have do, mine. I'm just letting you know, Alfonso. <laughs> you do not have mine. Um, so is this because I was laughing about the uh, yes, joke earlier? Yes, just yes. Uh, is there it, is there any a, way <laughs> is there any way that I can get out of the doghouse if I can get out of the corner? Is there can any get way? one of those? Can Could you, you call one Andrew of those gay Cuomo? senior homes? <laughs> <laughs> oh God! If uh, I can find, well, no, I was going to say introduce me to Andrew Cuomo, but you know what, Alfonso, I don't need you. I will find my own way. <laughs> well, after the crisis, because you can't travel right now, and arguably yeah. we have to engage in physical distancing. Yeah. You just so have maybe to bring I me down at every moment, <laughs> don't you? Does that make you feel good? Um, <laughs> I cannot tell you what you are truly inspiring i mean you are you you're like amazing you're you're like a, a real life superhero you're my superhero oh, uh i'm gonna you. i'm gonna make you a cape <laughs> i don't, <laughs> don't need it <laughs> i don't sew so it's gonna be ugly but it'll be a cape um no i just i i can't thank you enough for joining us today this has been absolutely uh, it's been extraordinary and um, you, uh, for anybody who is not, please go on the human rights campaign website. We're going to, we're going to put the link up, but just see what they're doing and see the incredible work that's being done and that as being led by, oh, we didn't, we didn't even mention this, that you are the first person of color to right. be president of the human's right. I mean, the human rights campaign, and I think, uh, they are lucky to have you. And we were lucky to have you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very, very much. I really appreciate that. I can't wait Thank to meet you someday soon. And uh, good luck. And please reach out to us if you need anything. Thank you. Thank you both for all of those nice words and all of your support. Uh, we definitely need it. And we really appreciate it because, as I said before, the work continues. And it's even more critical now than ever right. that we make sure that we have people that are supportive of all communities, not just some communities, but all right. communities. Right. So thank you. Well, right. bless you they for say. doing the, the brilliant work. And um, I, I thank you. It's Jen with the Human Rights Campaign. We're the nation's largest LGBTQ advocacy group. As a member of the LGBTQ community, I can tell you from experience that during these uncertain times, it is more important than 
ever that we band together. We've overcome in times of crisis before, and we can do it again. LGBTQ people are uniquely vulnerable during this crisis. They're more likely to work jobs in highly affected industries. They often have more exposure or higher economic sensitivity to the COVID-19 crisis. And LGBTQ people are less likely to have health coverage. Please help the Human Rights Campaign be there for LGBTQ people by donating today. Just text DONATE to 472-472. For podcast listeners only, donate $10 or more and you will receive a No Hate in My State HRC baseball cap so you can advocate for acceptance in your community. Join us by texting DONATE to 472-472. And we're back. Um, uh, I think I love him. Well, I mean... When you were saying super superhero cape, I mean, yeah, like you know, and he probably has the build for it too because he works out. All the oh, time. he does. <laughs> Did you see him I, in that tuxedo doing his speech at the human rights yeah. campaign? No. So are you? I mean, wait a minute. Perfect. Are you now dumping Andrew Cuomo for a No, I okay. I think we can all live happily together. <laughs> uh, a New York thruple. I love it. Um, yeah, that was uh, that was quite a treat, and he's an exciting, very exciting person. And um, really, the it's really the political world. That's the thing people don't realize about HRC is, you know, aside from their all the social work that they do, they have a political arm. It's a, a very powerful machine. Uh, getting out the vote, uh, you know, canvassing. They they were really a big part of the. Um, you know, the wave of win back uh, house. So I'm very, uh, very optimistic about the role HRC will have in this coming election. And I hope people yeah. really do support them now that they're and, not able to do I, their dinners. I, no, I, I'm, I'm very serious when I say go on their website and look at the work they're doing, because it's such, I mean, especially at this moment in our history, they, they are invaluable and they are, and you know, uh, we need to all take care of each other, and That's right. they are. Yes, yes, yes. All right. Well, we don't have a game today because um, life is a game, that. Johnny. Life is a game. This is so true. Um, so we are going to just uh, sign off now um, and urge you to uh, download our show, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts because we are not going to stop. We've got uh, another wonderful guest coming up next week, and um, so it shall roll on. Yes. Yes, so it shall. So it shall. Um, I can't wait to talk to you again next week, and um, I can't wait for our next guest. And go on, Johnny, say it, because it's just not an end of a podcast unless you say it. Okay. Tara, see you next Tuesday. <laughs> You're the only one laughing, buddy. You're the only one laughing. Oh, I doubt that. Bye, everybody. Love you. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>